unfortunately the, the, the season uh, went uh, bad. What is done is done, okay? Well, for me, it was all about working at a very good football club and having the opportunity to be successful, and I jumped at the chance. It did feel as if he'd listened, that he'd, he'd, he'd taken on somebody that knew the club very well. I don't think there was any qualms about us not doing particularly well, as long as there wasn't any of the interference that we'd already started to, to experience. The chairman would come in and then start pointing at the ball and go, no, he doesn't play. He doesn't play there. There were some mad things, like some decision that didn't make sense to us as a players. We knew exactly where them decisions were coming from. Hello, everyone, and welcome to season two of The Circus Upstairs. We are back. I'm James Masters, no longer a long-suffering Lake Orient fan, just a very happy Lake Orient fan. I'm glad you said that because I was waiting to pick you up on saying long suffering when we've just won our first league title for 53 years and was going to suggest that if there was ever a time that you weren't suffering it should be now no i'm absolutely delighted i'm ecstatic every adjective you can think of at the moment matt just use it because that's what i am when we lose our first game in league one well ends out exactly i'm matt simpson author of the book Leighton orient's greats sales of which have not increased in the slightest since the launch of season one. I was going to say something sarcastic or mock you, but I just feel so sorry for you that I can't actually bring myself to do it. So um, we'll move on. Sad, complete waste of time, the whole thing. Um, oh yeah, how do you feel season one went? Yeah, I, I, I think um, season one went really well. I hope everyone enjoyed listening to it. Um, it certainly got a lot of people talking. And also I think it was really good timing with the release, um, Matt, on your part, because it was great to hear just how bad everything was, just as Orient were on the way to on our way um, to promotion, um, and the contrast between the you know where we were then and where we are now. Um, it just seemed the perfect timing. That was all designed to play out exactly like that. I think it went down quite well, but um, can I read you a tweet uh, that I received from someone called at Orient Forever uh, on Twitter? Uh, which reads, why don't you two clowns stop raking over the past and get behind the team for once in your lives? You make me sick. Hashtag twats. Got a point. It's a fair point, you know. I made that up, actually. Um, but it was a uh, approximation of many of the tweets I receive every time I write a blog. Really? Yes. So, season two, in the spirit of The Empire Strikes Back, Godfather Part Two, The Dark Knight, and of course, Police Academy 2, their first assignment, I'm intending that this is going to be better than the original. Well, it's going to start well. We know that. It's going to start really well. Good point. And um, before we get into it, can you quickly recap what happened in season one and where we are now? Well, Orient were relegated on the last day after losing away at Swindon, despite being 2-0 up. Um, they'd had a dreadful season. Managers had come and gone. Liverani, his contract was not renewed. And despite having some of the most talented players in the division, Joby Makanoff, Doris Henderson, Jay Simpson, the O's could not survive. There was the ill-fated reality TV show. There was Andrea Dosena, allegedly arrested for stealing honey from Harrods. And there were defeats after defeats after defeats. Well, that's jolly. I'd like to say that things improving 
season two, but they don't. They get much, much worse. Buckle in, listeners. There was a report suggesting that Francesco Bacchetti was considering selling the club after the relegation. What was that all about? Yes, so in May, the Evening Standard came out with a report that said Bacchetti was was considering selling the club. According to the Standard, um, they wrote that there are a couple of overseas buyers looking to invest in the London club and a prominent Middle Eastern businessman currently living in Beijing is due to arrive in the next fortnight for informal talks about Orium. That is the type of bold leadership we were expecting from Francesco Baghetti. Things go a bit wrong and he just bails out. I mean, you say that, Matt, but we wish he had. It would have been better if he had. And actually, things weren't looking that great for Baghetti off the pitch because we found out on the 9th of June that the Albanian government had put out an arrest warrant for him for fraud. What was all that about? Yes, yeah, so... Um, as you said, the Albanian authorities issued an arrest warrant for him and his mother um, with the pair and the two business associates accused of fraud-related offences and money laundering, according to The Guardian. These charges related to a failed hydroelectric scheme that allegedly cost the Albanian government tens of millions of euros in grants and unpaid taxes. It, it should be said that the charges carried a maximum prison sentence of 15 years. Okay, that's not looking that good for him. Um, At the same time, the Albanian government impounded Agon TV channel, which I'm guessing made Nicole Kidman extremely agitated that she'd had to sit next to Francesco Bacchetti on the launch night just a few months earlier, although the seven-figure sum that she was no doubt paid probably softened the blow a little. Despite all that, Francesco Bacchetti did manage to appoint his fifth manager of his reign. Who was that? That was Ian Hendon. And you know what? At the time, I thought, that's a, that's an okay appointment. I'm, I'm happy with that. Um, Hendon had managed before briefly at, at Dover, but he'd, he'd done a lot of coaching at West Ham. Um, he's obviously played for Orient, I think, in the 93 to 97. Um, he, was a, he was a decent defender. He had a good shot on him, I remember, from right back. And I thought that's someone who knows lower league football. It's like they've listened. Um, someone who knows the game will have contacts uh, at levels where we can bring players in. And so I actually was quite encouraged by, by that appointment. I would say Ian Hendon is the Orient manager I would least like to get in a fight with. But you managed it, didn't you? Or was that you managed to get in a fight? He's, <laughs> he's pretty hard, Ian Hendon. He's a scary man. Yeah, I think assertive maybe um i don't think he would take it would suffer fools let's listen to what ian himself said in his first press conference do you have any concerns over over the future i think speak again speaking with the chairman and, and the conversations i've had the club are looking for stability the club are looking for stability i feel like that quote's going to come back and bite him they didn't look very hard, did they? That's what I would say. We were also very privileged in that press conference to hear from everyone's favourite CEO, Alessandro Angeleri, who seems to have done quite well in his English lessons over the close season. And this is what he had to say. Uh, yes, uh, the last uh, 12 months uh, is an uh, experience for us. We did uh, some mistakes, uh, honestly, and uh, we don't want to do the same mistakes uh, the next season, we want to start. Uh, we want to, to take a book and uh, uh, turn the page. We have a new page, white page, to write with uh, a, a little experience that we have taken last season. And uh, he has our uh, writer. Okay. 
<laughs> what a hilarious man, Alessandro Angeleri is. I love the way he describes the catastrophic mismanagement of the club that went on in the season before as a few little mistakes. It doesn't fill you with confidence that they've learned or listened, uh, does it? But they've turned a new page. You know, Matt, get behind the team. Alessandro Angeleri also did an interview with our friends at the Orient Outlook podcast. And they also asked him what went wrong last season and what he planned to do about it this season. I would like to explain that last year was started, uh, we started too late because we bought the club uh, during the first week of July and there was no time for prepare a budget in advance. No? And uh, we started with uh, the whole team and uh, we improved uh, the team with the big players uh, with the idea to, to, to go up. Unfortunately, the, the, the season uh, went uh, bad and uh, what is done is done. Okay? This year we started immediately after uh, the end of the season and uh, we worked uh, hard for prepare a right budget for the season um, because I think that uh, it's not necessary to spend too much money but it's, uh, it's good to spend the money in the right way. Well, I think the last part of what he said there is um, it's important to not spend too much money but spend it in the right way. It's a little more on it, I suppose. You'd have to say it as if he'd learned. From, from, the, from those little mistakes that they made. No one has ever described Alessandro Angeleri as on it before. You want to give them the benefit of the doubt at that time. But then, of course, that's more difficult to do as the season goes on. I think you're right. I think they had, it did feel like they had started to learn and actually made another appointment that seemed to confirm that in the appointment of Ian Hendon's assistant, a man called Andy Hessen Taylor. Controversial because I've spent my whole life calling him Andy Hessen Tyler. But when he spoke to us, he called himself Andy Hessen Taylor. So I don't really know what to think anymore. But he was um, he was the former Gillingham manager. He had a distinguished playing career, excellent experience, worked together before at Gillingham where Hendon was assisting Hessen Taylor. So I thought sensible appointment again, you know, sensible appointment. So happily, we were able to talk to Andy Hessen Taylor as we must call him. First of all, I was really curious as to what he'd heard about what had gone on at the club the previous season and whether that affected his decision to join the club. Not really, because um, obviously I was um, coming in with Ian, uh, Ian Hendon, he sold me the club and uh, obviously I played against later on uh, a few times over my career. So I knew it was a very good club, you know, and um, I didn't really know too much about Obviously, the chairman there, and and uh, at the time, but it, for me, it was all about working a, a, a very good football club uh, alongside Ian uh, and uh, having the opportunity to to be successful. And uh, you know, I, I jumped at the chance. So he was up for it. Fair play to him. And shortly after Andy Hessen Taylor was appointed, the club made another appointment: the goalkeeping coach Lee Harrison. Who's he? Yeah, so Lee Harrison um, was, was the Orient goalkeeper, actually, for a couple of years. He was at Barnet before that, when he was just, he was fantastic in that Barnet side that did so well. Another sensible addition to, to the backroom staff. I keep saying the word sensible. Quite scary, but at that point, yeah, I can, I, can, I can get on board with all of this. 
We should say that Kevin Nugent was still on the backroom staff. So listeners to season one will remember um, that he was manager number two in Bacchetti's reign, but still stayed at the club in a coaching capacity. So between the four of them, as you say, I think that was a pretty solid, experienced quad quadruplet. I think the word you're looking for is quartet. Quartet. Thank you. That's why you're here, James. So very happily, we also managed to speak to Lee Harrison. And I asked him pretty much the same question. Did he have any reservations about joining Orient, given what he knew about what had happened the season before? And in answering that, he talks about talking to Kevin Dearden, who for anyone who is not familiar with Leighton Orient goalkeeping coaches, he was the goalkeeping coach and worked on the recruitment team in the previous season. So here's Lee. Yeah, um, so Ian obviously became Orient manager and he approached me in the pre-season and said, look, I'd like you to come with me. Um, so I started the pre-season at West Ham and and then came over there with him. But uh, no, I gave, uh, I'm really close with Kevin Dean, so I gave him a call um, and had a long chat about the the what's, why's and where's. And really, that, that should have been the warning um, uh, um, because he told me some of the things that had gone on. But, you know, it... it it was tough because Orient was a club that I'd started as a as a child and a kid and grown up there and played for, so probably my my heart sort of ruled my head a little bit. Um, but yeah, no, Kev gave me some warnings as to what might happen. What did he say? I uh, just said that you'll find times when it's all okay, and he said then you'll find times where uh, things get interfered with quite a bit, and. Uh, he was sort of in charge, I think, of recruitment as well at the time under Russell Slade. Um, and he drew up a list of people that would be good for Leighton Orient Football Club um, and then was given a totally different list of uh, foreign uh, acquisitions that they wanted to bring in themselves. So I think he thought, you know, the alarm bells were ringing for him then uh, and kind of warned me that there'd be times when you think it'd all be all right and then there's times when it gets quite volatile. Should have listened to Kevin. That's what I'll say. Should have listened to Kevin. So with the backroom team in place, there was a pretty big overhaul of the squad coming into the season. What happened, James? I mean, lots of lots of players who were part of that fantastic run to the League One player final under Russell Slave left the club. That's right. We lost Captain Nathan Clark, strikers Kevin Lisby and David Mooney, Scott Cuthbert went to Luton, which was a terrible move. They were clearly never going anywhere. Uh, we also lost some of the Italians that contributed so much to our relegation. So Gianvito Plasmati returned to play for, I'm going to assume, a local under 11 team in rural Tuscany. Andrea De Sena went back to Italy to eat as much honey as he liked without paying for it. And dashingly handsome translator Roberto Gagliardi also left. But don't forget the name because like a chainsaw wielding psychopath from a horror franchise, he is going to keep coming back to Orient and proves impossible to kill. Hold that thought. One player, however, who didn't leave was Matthew Baldry. Who's that, James? Yeah, Matt was uh, was a central defender. You know, not all players love love the clubs um, they play for, but I felt like Matt uh, and the fans had a, had a special rapport, especially after the playoff final. He he missed the penalty in in that playoff final, and uh, legend is that he 
went to the pub where the Orient fans were after the playoff final and, and bought drinks to to, to apologise for missing, which kind of says a lot about the man. Yeah, as if that makes up for it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh... <laughs> How dare you try to fob me off with half a pint of wheat lager after failing to score a penalty that would have got us into the championship? Just kidding. He's a great guy. Um, nicknamed Frenchy with typical footballer wit because he is French, not because he had a penchant for kissing his teammates with tongues when they score a goal. We spoke to Matt Baudry for this podcast, and he is an absolutely lovely guy. And the first thing we asked him is, why on earth, after everything that happened in the previous season, did he stay at Orient? I, did, I was thinking, because the, the relegation season was so bad, I was thinking, yeah, I can't carry on like that. Um, so I said, uh, I said I wanted to leave. But then I spoke to the Hendon he called me in the summer um, and he told me that um, things that change, uh, the chairman just uh, understood his mistakes and it was going to be different this year. And he wanted to build a, a strong team like, around the nucleus of players we had and we wanted to play like attractive type of football. It just convinced me, really. So then I was ready for the challenge to try to get back up, really. So we cleared out a lot of players, but we signed quite a few new ones. Um, who were they, James? Again, I, th- I thought they were sensible signings. Ollie Palmer came in from, from Mansfield the Ford. Now starring in the Disney Plus TV series, Road to Wrexham. They won the National League, did you know? Just checking. I just wish the media had reported on that because that feels like it should have been a big story. Anyway, some of the other signings included defender Sean Clahessey, from Colchester United. We're going to hear much more about him. Sammy Moore from AFC Wimbledon, Paul McCallum from the West Ham youth team and Blair Turgut from Coventry City. So this was quite different to the season before when we'd gone for big name championship players. What what had changed, do you think? Well, I think you heard Alessandro talk about, you know, spending the money the right way and it sounds like they've listened to to ian hendon here i can't imagine these are names that bacchetti's picked out the hat uh, to sign another club insider that we spoke to as part of this podcast was howard gould who oversaw all of the community outreach that orient did so organized players going into schools he organized the penalty shootouts that happened at halftime and he had a good inside track on what was going on at the club so we asked him how he felt pre-season there was a sense of like okay you know he's come to realize that you need an english-speaking manager who uh, who knows the club you know and ian had been there before and he had a, he had quite a strong reputation uh, you know being um, not an old school but you know getting things done so I don't think there was any qualms about us not doing particularly well, as long as there wasn't any of the interference that we'd already started to to experience. So we asked Lee Harrison during pre-season whether he, they did start to experience any of the interference that had been common in the season before. Yeah, I think through pre-season we were, we were just left alone and pretty much left to get on with it, which was good. And then there was a couple of things with contracts that, as the pre-season rolled on. Uh, I think it was Shane Lowry came to us and said, uh, I'll just let you know, um, I've looked in my contract, I've found out I've got a get-out clause. <laughs> uh, and we kind of said, well, when did you find out about that? He said, uh, I've only just read it. He's, so we pulled Andrew, uh, 
Alessandra and that, and they said, yeah, yeah, we can give it, but we forgot to tell you. So kind of we were going through things through pre-season and some of the things opened our eyes a little bit. But through pre-season, we, we were fine. You know, they pretty much left us to our own devices. Did you feel positive about Orient's chances that season? Yeah, because, um, listen, you go through the squad, a lot of the players there were playing in the playoffs um, to get into the championship. Okay, let's get into the season. What was the first game, James? The first home game or the first game of the season was against Barnet. And I remember it on a personal level because it was my stag. And I was made to dress in full kit and boots uh, by my friends all the way to Brisbane Road. And then I had to walk around the pitch with all the kids waving the flag. Uh, And then I waved the flag as the players came out uh, while cropping a lot of stick um, from some of the players as well, actually. That wasn't the only thing that happened. So pre-game, I don't know if you remember this because you were, might have been caught up in your stag activities, um, but Bacchetti, Hendon and Angelari came on and did a lap of honour before the game started. And, and like, on what planet does a team that's just been relegated, does the president, the CEO and the new manager do a lap of honour before the first game. And what particularly annoyed me about it was I thought it was really, really gutless of Bacchetti to do that because he knew that if Hendon was with him, him being an ex-Orient player and our new manager, people weren't going to boo. But if Bacchetti himself or Bacchetti and Angelari had done a lap of honour, everyone would have booed, right? Yeah, essentially, uh, Ian Hendon being used as a human shield. It was a very telling, gutless moment of Bacchetti. Well, a combination of being gutless and wanting the sort of adoration that I think characterised a lot of the reasons behind why he why he bought Orion in the first place. Yeah, I thought it was a very telling moment. Did we win that game? Yeah, we did. We won 2-0. It was a really good start and the good start continued. We actually won all of our games in August. So we won our first five games. It obviously put us top of the table. It included in the win over Stevenage, genuinely the best goal I've ever seen in my life. I don't think I can forget that goal, which was just a sensational liquid football back to front. Just a fabulous team goal. I think it's the best goal that's ever been scored. I urge everyone to go to YouTube and Google Blair Turgut, Orient v Stevenage, and you'll see what I mean. As a consequence of Orient's fantastic form throughout August, Bacchetti himself started exhibiting some weird behavior. So he took to wearing Orient kit to games. He took to sitting in the away end during away matches. And after he got picked up in his expensive car would be like hanging out the window, high-fiving fans. It was all very bizarre. Just remember suddenly we start winning and suddenly he's got his shirt on. I do think there were some fans who felt, okay, he's buying buying into it a bit more now. We spoke to Dave Victor, who hopefully listeners will remember from season one, who is the voice of Leighton Orient, covers Orient for the BBC. And we talked to him about those weird high fives that were going on from Baghetti outside games. 
it was amazing. You think how bad we were at Swindon and, and how people were, were so, so keen to, to, to get it to work. And I know how they felt. I wanted it to work, and it did feel as if he'd listened, that he'd, he'd, he'd taken on somebody that knew the club very well, um, knew the division very well, and clearly had been a successful coach in his own right at uh, West Ham United. It was a sound um, appointment from a distance, but I was surprised just how supporters were so forgiving of him because he was on the pitch, wasn't he, uh, on the opening day of that season in the middle of the pitch and getting the applause as he welcomed Ian Hendon to the club. And you just think, you know, we're in the fourth division now. Not so long ago, we could have been in the championship. You know, there wasn't too much um, really to to say thank you to. And it, uh, I just got this huge sense of frustration about the the whole thing and I, I was never very confident. So things were going pretty well. We talked to Matt Baudry on his perspective on those first five victories. We started the season pretty well, to be fair. Um, we played some nice football, so pretty much felt like, a bit like what uh, the manager told me on the phone when I spoke in the summer. So the mood were quite good in the camp. Like We didn't really hear that much from the chairman at that time. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty good. So, it was all going brilliantly. We won all our games and we went into September full of confidence. What happened in September? Five wins on the bounce in August. Absolutely flying. Going into September and didn't win a single game, Matt. In fact, that first league game in September, the day before my wedding, nearly derailed the whole wedding, I must say. It was a 4-0 defeat. Uh, away at Exeter. We did lose 4-0 to Exeter. We then lost 2-1 to Carlisle and we drew the next three matches. So by the end of September, we'd dropped to fifth in the table with 18 points from 10 games, which was still pretty good. We were obviously up there. We were in the playoff zone. But as a consequence of form dropping off a bit, that dreaded word interference started to rear its head again. So we talked to Lee Harrison about what was happening. As soon as we lost that first one at Exeter, then the uh, we found out the interference started a little bit. What actually started happening? Well, what you'd have is, they'd obviously have opinions on players and come round to a Friday, you, we'd be sat in the room at the training ground, which is a big table with all the staff. And Ian might have written a team up on the board that he thought would play and the chairman would come in about half past nine with about 10 other uh, hangers on and then start pointing, pointing at the ball and go, no, he doesn't play. He doesn't play there. And, it, you know, Ian, Ian Ian was bullish, you know. No, he plays. He plays. So already you, you're getting the chairman coming in and making an opinion on people. And they're standing around the training ground on the edge of the pitch on a Friday. And the players then get a sense of, here we go again, I think, because of what's gone on the year before. So that was the, real, the first real signs um, that things were going to start. So, I mean, that is quite extraordinary. It, you know, the, the president coming in and saying who does and doesn't play, I'm sure is not something you've ever experienced before or after, is it? No, I think chairman will always have an opinion, but it's very rare they come down the, tra- the training ground. You know, I'm sure managers managers always speak to chairman, like, what's your team? What do you think? Uh, and they have that relationship. I'm not sure coming in and do it visually in front of all the staff and having an opinion is a good thing. And then... 
being around the training ground on the Friday, I'm not sure it puts the players at ease, especially after the season before when a lot of them have known what's gone on uh, and seen some of the things that have happened. When you say Ian was bullish about who did and didn't play, like was he overruled by Bachetti sometimes? Did he have to concede? No, I think Ian, look, this is probably Ian, Ian, Ian's very you know, strong-headed, you know, and uh, I think probably the fact that he didn't concede on things was probably his undoing in the end. Chairman didn't want Sean Clohesse in the side. Uh, was adamant and point, you know, and pointed. No, I don't want him in the team. And that was sort of like four or five games in that was happening. And Ian was like, "No, no, he's playing. He, he, he's the only right back, or well, he's the one I've got at the moment. He's playing." So things like that were going on, um, and, and, and players were then aware as well. You know, I know Sean Clohesse was totally aware of that the president didn't want him in the team. You know, Lloyd James would be aware that that wasn't the case because. Italians couldn't help themselves going round and, and speaking to these players. Couldn't help going and getting in the ear of these players and saying, look, you know, don't think you'll be playing Saturday or, you know, things like that. And how do you manage that then? You know, when players are being told by other, you know, other people at the club what's going on or what, what people think of them. And Ian was bullish. You know, Ian was like, no, no, I'm the manager. This is what needs to happen. I didn't want Sean Clare in the team either. He played a fabulous part in that goal that you raved about, the Blurto goal. I feel bad that I made that cheap joke now. More to the point, that is extraordinary, is it not? Mind-blowing, really, when you when you hear Harrison talking. We also asked Andy Hessen-Taylor for his perspective on that interference. To have, um, obviously, a lot of uh, Italian guys at the training ground. Um, it was two or three at the time, you know, the chairman's entourage, as, as I said, and uh, it was very, it was very new to me uh, as a manager because obviously I spent a lot of time at uh, Gillingham as manager. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I've never experienced that before to have uh, so many people watching training. So it was an interesting one, but yeah, it didn't take long. What was actually going on with all those guys at the training ground? How how are they involving themselves? Well, I'm I'm just used to obviously been over the years, just you know, obviously uh, manager, assistant manager, and our staff, the footballing staff, but not to have you know two two or three guys overseeing training, um, having having to speak to them pretty much every day on what we're doing, and you know team selection, what the team's going to be, uh, and had to all be reported back to the chairman. So it was it was new to me and I've never seen anything like it. So they just wanted to be involved all the time on what we was doing. And for me, we we, we was employed there to, to run the football side of it, you know, and and, uh, and coach the, the team and, and obviously in, and manage the team. And uh, that was our job. And um, we should have been left, for me, left to, to do that job. When you say you had to report back to them what you were doing, what the team selection was, were they also influencing or trying to influence what your decisions were around that? Um, not so much the guys that they yeah, are. The chairman did, though. Yeah, I mean, the chairman did. He, he, he um, you know, like I say, you pick a team uh, for the weekend or, or uh, Tuesday and, um, and it was always questioned. You could see that... Um, that he wanted to say, um, the chairman, and, um, you know, it got to the stage where um, that he was trying to pick the team, yeah. He, 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 he trying to influence the, the team selection. So how, how did that actually work? What would he do? Well, he, he did visit the training ground quite a few times, um, you know, to speak to Ian and, and myself. Um, 
and uh, and, and obviously it was mainly on a Friday before a game on a Saturday to see what the team was and and there will be a lot of questions or he should be playing or he should be playing and or we'd have to report to to London to speak to him and and uh, his home and, and and go through the team so that's pretty much how it worked um, and. You know, as us as football uh, people, we 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 picked the team as we saw it. You know, um, again, I've worked with chairmen, and and they'll all have an opinion on it. Hundred percent, they will, and and rightly so. But ultimately, it's got to come down to the manager uh, to pick the team um, and and not be influenced by. You know, as I say, I've worked with chairmen before, and you know, they let they've, they've let me get on with the job. Um, so. It was it was a strange situation, one that I didn't enjoy. I don't think anyone from the outside knew how bad it was. I, I think everyone knew it was there, but you know that level of detail really is quite quite shocking. Also, the arrogance to think that you, as a non-football person, have better judgment or insight or expertise around picking the team than someone who's like lived and breathed it all their life. It's like like it's like getting you to pick the team, James. It'd be catastrophic disaster. I don't know if my my teams would have been quite as bad as uh, as the ones that uh, were picked by the regime at that time. I think I could pick a better team than some of the Orient managers under Bacchetti's reign. Not difficult. True. We continued to talk to Hess. Let's just call him Hess because I feel really uncomfortable about pronouncing his name wrong now. And you can probably hear it here in my voice every time I say it. I'm just not quite sure. So I'm going to call him Hess now. We continued to talk to Hess and asked him how this sort of interference was affecting him and the squad. I think if you ask any player who's involved in that, obviously the chairman's time at the club, it was too much unrest uh, at times and and it, like I said I go back it's a shame because it's a wonderful club and you know wonderful fans and they deserve better and it was tough because obviously you guys you know um, it certainly didn't know what was going on behind the scenes it's hard to for you to know that, uh, what was happening and um, and the players did and you know we we tried to get on with things and you know but it, I, like I said it was too many disruptions um, and it, for me, it, did, it affected everybody in the end. And then we also spoke to Matt Baldry about how it affected him and his teammates. Yeah, that's why I feel like maybe when we start the season and when you, you're winning games, I think it's maybe it's not so much. But then when you start maybe losing a few games, then that's when probably these people just trying to interfere more and just say, oh, maybe we need to do this and maybe we need to do that. Definitely, um, as a captain, I had some discussion where, yeah, the manager just kind of like hinted that they were kind of like, there was like pressure like um, above him on certain things and it could be like difficult for him. So yeah, it, it was tough. So how did that make you feel as a player and the captain to know that you couldn't be certain that the team the manager was picking was 100% his own team. We knew from the season, the season before, like, like I said, when we got relegated, when there were some mad things, like some decision that couldn't, that didn't make sense to us as a player, as players, we knew exactly where them decisions were coming from. But like I said, I think at the start of season, I thought we were kind of like past it. Like when we started having, when we started a good run of games and 
from what the manager said, I thought it kind of like uh, they'll be under control. But then, yeah, when we start getting some few bad results, you, you could feel like it start like creeping in a little bit. What was it like on the training ground then? Because I think one of the things Lee said to us was that quite often the Italian entourage would be talking to different players and in some people's ears and other people's ears saying, you know, you should be playing, you should not be playing. Was that happening? Yeah, I think there's definitely a bit of this. Like people thought some people were in contact with certain players and things like that. So I thought the players live quite well together. But it's, it never makes it like you need to, it, when there's too many voices and stuff and different messages being like, it's it's never good. I think you need that's why we need a clear structure when there's like the manager or if you've got a sport director and you know they they just yeah they just talk the same talk like really they just they go in the same way and when they start having different messages coming to different people and bypassing certain people, I think it just becomes just a bit of a mess. Really. Yeah, of course. And as captain, was that happening to you directly? Were there sort of conversations you were having with the rest of the entourage? Like you say, yeah, there's like people that were always here and you never knew really what they were doing, really. <laughs> but they were here, like just doing, don't know what they were doing. Or just a pretty calm, confident guy. But I think you get a sense the way he talks there, just how difficult it was, you know, mentally for the players to, to cope with that situation and then to go out on a Saturday and to produce a, a performance. So obviously the interference was still going on. We were intrigued to find out a little bit more about what it was like when Francesco Pacchetti visited the training ground. So we asked our friend Howard Gould what that was like. Oh, I just happened to be at the training ground and he came with an entourage. He always had an entourage. There were six or seven guys around him, including his driver. One would be uh, an interpreter. Uh, two, two or three, I don't know who they were, just hangers on. He came in, he strolled around. He looked at the training ground and he stood there looking out the window at the player's training and I thought well I felt like a bit of an odd you know person just I said do you want to could I make you a cup of tea would you like tea or coffee or something and he didn't turn around he was still looking out the window he didn't even acknowledge me and his interpreter turned around and he said uh I will ask him (laughs) so he asked him I guess in Italian uh and he said yes he would like tea blah 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 okay so I made a cup of tea put it down he never drank it he was just sat there through the whole time and then they strolled off. They went out the door. They were, they were a trail of them. It was just like a trail of ants. And they just followed in his footsteps. He walked around. I think he spoke to Ian Hendon. I saw him in the distance talking. And they trailed back again. And that was it. So not even a word. Bit rude. Yeah, a bit rude. And someone, I think Howard's underlining there, the kind of discomfort within the training ground whenever, whenever he showed up. Either that or Howard makes exceptionally bad tea. I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and find out. I mean, to be fair, I probably wouldn't drink the coffee from the training ground either. So we tried to get Alessandro Angeleri on this podcast, didn't we? To give his perspective on this. He didn't choose to take up our offer, which I'm deeply disappointed by, because I feel like he and I have a lot of common. I think we'll probably be good mates. 
the offer's still open, Alessandro. But the reason I say that is that if we go back to the interview that Alessandro did do with our friends at Orient Outlook podcast, he referenced the interference himself, and this was his take on it. Uh, so is it just the manager who picks yeah, the team? Yes, it's the manager that uh, shows the team every single match. But uh, obviously, he's a, he's, a, he's a club, and uh, me the chairman speak with the manager and when we take uh, some uh, dinner we speak about uh, the team uh, about the, the position of the player as, as normal no is uh, uh, is usual to speak uh, about uh, about this but is is the manager that uh, shows uh, the team obviously i feel like those dinners might be quite sinister the manager chooses the team that's what he says the manager chooses the team oh well if he says that then that's fine well, exactly so Alessandro says there's no interference and I for one think I'll take his word for it despite the fact literally every single other person we've spoke to has told us the complete opposite. But anyway, that does bring us to the end of episode five. James, what's going to come up in episode six? Well, Matt, we'll have the strange tale of Joby Mackinoff. We'll have the Hartlepool imprisonment incident and a rather bizarre visit to the training ground by Francesco Bicchetti. All I'm going to say on that is be prepared to have the eye of the tiger. Thanks, James. It was fun, as always. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we hope to see you next time. Arrivederci.